Welcome to listen to the University of Oulu's podcast called An Interview with Honorary Doctor. In this podcast, we will get to know more closely the lives and careers of honorary doctors who will be conferred in the 11th conferment ceremony of the University of Oulu. The university has invited persons for conferment who have collaborated significantly with researchers in the University of Oulu. In addition, Invitations have been made to persons who have distinguished themselves significantly in other ways in the society and for the benefit of operations of the university. Conferment of an honorary doctorate is the highest honor the university can confer to a person. My name is Simo Kekalainen, and today our guest will be honorary doctor, Professor John McGrath. Welcome, John. Hi, Simo. It's wonderful to have you here. And today we'll be talking about your life, your career, and research, academic career in general. But let me begin from the very beginning. So, John, you're an Australian. How was it like growing up in Australia? Well, Australia is a great country. We're, we're, we're a young country, part of the new world. So, all of us are, most of us are migrants. We have an indigenous population, but over the last 250 years, there's been waves of migrants. And my ancestors came out here to, to mine coal from Ireland and Scotland. And um, so I'm really lucky to, to live in a multicultural society. And um, I'm very lucky to come from a, a family that respected education. My dad was a plumber and uh, no one in my family had gone to university or college but uh, but uh, so he, my mother and father supported uh, good education, and uh, I uh, was very lucky like that. So, and then um, I sometimes complain, uh, Simo, about not enough money for research here in Australia. Like many part, many countries around the world, um, you know, COVID's affected us, and it's very hard to get grants now. But I feel very lucky that I grew up in a country that allowed me to do my university education for free that allowed me to train as a doctor and to do research, uh, which I'm very lucky to have a job I love. So I'm grateful for that. And just as you mentioned, the free university tuition, uh, Finland and Australia, they are quite alike. And you reserved your medical degree from the University of Queensland. But was medicine always a clear choice for you? Or did you have any other alternative career plans when you were young? I think um, I, sh I should point out that since I went through university, the government now does charge the students to go through. So <laughs> as a golden period. Things have changed. And, uh, yes. Things have changed. And it uh, gives me no pleasure to, to see that. But um, I think as a, as a student, um, as a schoolboy, I was interested in the brain and uh, not in a, you know, a nerdy, sort of geeky focused way but i think that 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 had always always interested me and um and then uh i was lucky enough to to get the adequate marks to get into medicine but uh, but i remember really um uh, i think i became better at studying as i as i got older um was didn't always go to plan i actually uh, f failed quite a few subjects in my first semester of first year because i used to do a lot of music simo i used to play in a youth orchestra and uh, and i and the musicians had really good parties and i'd be partying all night and not studying and <laughs> but, uh, and then i think in fifth year medicine my my the orchestra that i was in went on a european tour and uh, so i missed out on my pediatrics term failed but they let me kindly do a supplementary exam. So uh, it's pretty lucky like that. But just going back to your question, I, I think I was always, always interested in the brain. And as a medical student, when I did my psychiatry term, I, I did a little bit of research. And I think that kind of inoculated me that research can be fun. It can also be frustrating and boring and teeth grinding. And you, you go through periods where you love research and hate research. But for me, um, I realized that there's a, lot, there's a lot of work to be done um, in mental illness. When, when I was a medical student, I used to work in a psychiatric hospital as a nursing orderly. So I'd work the night shifts and I would um, you know, help make sure the patients were uh, okay in the morning for their, for their showering and breakfast and things like that. And really saw, made me see how we have such a long way to go. There are a lot of 
everyday people like 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 me there uh, in mental hospitals, and um, so that was one of the factors that that led me down the path of uh, mental health as a, as a as a research career. Well, just as you said, John, uh, before moving to full-time research career, you worked as a community-based psychiatrist. Um, how did those years sort of influence your later career in the academic world? Was, was there some big takeaways that you saw with your own eyes? So, um, so I did my medicine, and that was six years. Then I did my psychiatry training. And I, I remember, Simo, that I was actually very nervous about starting psychiatry as a junior doctor. Um, and I thought, what will I do if I don't like psychiatry? You know, I had, I had this kind of, this, this pathway or this, this trajectory and, and I was anxious that, so I put it off at my psychiatry term as a, as a junior doctor and I did like surgery and pediatrics and I, I did some, uh, uh, did placements in remote locations up near, the top of Queensland, which is you know very close to Papua New Guinea, uh, and I saw cases of malaria and even leprosy. Would you believe it? So, uh, but then I did the psychiatry term, and I loved it. So it was just like love at first sight. I really felt like that was good. So I did in Australia. It's another five years of training, and then I so I was a doctor with a psychiatry qualifications, and I let my first job was in a community clinic, and that was. Um, that was different because I'd be driving out to visit people in their homes and talking to the relatives. And sometimes I'd have to go out with the police if we had to bring someone under the Mental Health Act. There'd be emergencies. There'd be um, people, really lovely people, managing with their mental illnesses. And I saw people get well, which was nice because it, I think doctors can have this what's called a clinician's illusion where you, you work in a hospital and you only see the patients that are really ill and don't get well. Whereas when you move to the community, you can see people who are back to their normal lives or back working and, and uh, recovered. So you see that fantastic journey. And many people, most people with mental illnesses, do make that recovery. And that was reassuring for me. And it, 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 was, it was interesting. I I uh, w was in the car going out visiting people in their homes and um, uh, a lot of fun memories. But, but Simo, at that same, same time, I was actually starting my PhD a and I did my PhD on language and thought disorder. It was kind of like linguistics. So I was looking at the, the features of people with psychosis where they're not very good at communicating clearly, they jump around topics, they don't take into account the needs of the listener. And I tried to dissect some of those factors. And um, so I did that for several years. I learned a lot about community psychiatry. Um, a PhD uh, is like an apprenticeship in research. And so I learned, you know, what goes right, what goes wrong. And, and then I, I got very lucky because uh, uh, where I work in Brisbane, um, the government had decided to shut down one of the big old asylums uh, all around the world there were these asylums where people would go and then we moved people out into the community in the 60s and 70s and uh, so they were closing a big psychiatric hospital and they decided well why don't we keep one of the wards for research uh, group and my good friend Harvey Whiteford set this up and started to, to do clinical trials and investigations of what the causes of schizophrenia were and it was there, Sima, that I, that I discovered my love of epidemiology. And, uh, you know, we did some little studies of does influenza, prenatal exposure to influenza cause schizophrenia? And this was a study that Finnish researchers had first done. And, uh, and I, I, so I looked at influenza epidemics in Australia. And um, we, we saw there was an increased risk of schizophrenia later on. But they're, they're very unsatisfying types of studies because they're correlational and you don't really know whether this, is, this causes that. Um, but, uh, but, but then I, I started to get into the groove where we could use epidemiology to look at questions like the causes of mental illness. I started to work with my colleagues in Finland 
Um, my colleagues in Denmark, we'll come back to that later on. Maybe I'll tell you about what I'm doing there. But I'll just I'll actually, Siva, I might tell you a little bit about, so, so we're, we're interested in influenza and um, there, some of this early work came from Finland. And I remember going to visit um, researchers in Helsinki and, and um, talking about that. And this is before I actually met my colleagues in Ulu, which uh, uh, was a great, we've worked on epidemiology as well. So um, I think that, that I still see myself in my heart as an epidemiologist, but, um, but I might just, just tell you, the listeners, that, that I had a maturity onset change of career as well. And I think for the junior researchers listening to this podcast, it's good to change directions because you, at the, at, the, at the intersection of different disciplines, sometimes you see the most creative energy. And in Brisbane, we had this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity where they decided to build a new brain institute where they were looking at basic neuroscience, fundamental um, cellular, uh, um, uh, molecular neuroscience and imaging and lots of animal models. And I said to myself, I want to be there. I want to be with that crowd. <laughs> and and I, I think there's a little bit of research envy where you, you kind of look at what other people are doing and you think, that's so cool. And uh, certainly, I, I love neuroscience. I still do. And uh, for, so for three days a week, I worked in a, in a brain institute where I'd be looking at animal models and zebrafish models and bees and, and um, uh, avian models and, and humans as well. And, uh, and, and I feel that, that, that in, in neurosciences and in psychiatry in particular, we will never be able to get really good treatments and understand why people have a broken brain unless we learn how the brain is built. And um, so what I've tried to do from an epidemiologist's perspective is find a risk factor uh, and then find one that then look at animal models and then see whether we can use those clues from epidemiology to unravel brain development. And uh, and if you like, I can tell you a little bit about our vitamin D research, yes, Simo. Please do, please do. So this links to this is this is links to Finland. So this is so weird, but it but in in schizophrenia research, since about 1920, they they realized that people born in winter and spring had a slightly increased risk of getting schizophrenia. And um, and so they thought, well, what's going on? Maybe the mothers are getting infected with flu, for example. And Finnish researchers did some of that. And we did some of it in Brisbane. But then um, I worked in London for a while and I saw there was an epidemic of schizophrenia in Afro-Caribbean migrants. Now, there's, there's, there's a lot of reasons why that, that may have been the case. These people are under a lot of social stress due to um, low-grade um, racism and social imagination. could be that they were smoking too much marijuana or whatever, but it could be that they weren't making enough vitamin D because vitamin D is the sunshine hormone. And um, if, you, if you don't get bright sunshine on your skin, you don't make vitamin D. And if you have dark skin and you live in a cold place like Finland, <laughs> then you will not make vitamin D. So uh, we, we proposed that hypothesis. And then I worked with them, um, with, with people at the University of Ulu, where they had, um, had that, your fantastic birth cohort. Many of your listeners may know this, but for those that don't, uh, there is this amazing birth, there are several amazing birth cohorts in Northern Finland. And to me, they are a great testament to the research capacity of your nation. Um, uh, so in the 1966 birth cohort, nearly everyone in Northern Finland uh, was enrolled and um, many of them are still participating. Uh, that in 1966, uh, the mothers of Finland were told, please give your babies vitamin D supplements because this is, a, this is well known that if you don't have vitamin D, the babies will get crickets. And then we, uh, the mothers were asked in 1967, did you give your babies vitamin D supplements? And we looked at yes, no, and then subsequent risk of schizophrenia because our, our hypothesis suggested that maybe the season of birth effect was not due to infection, it was due to low vitamin D. I left out that little, that little bit of a clue. And the, the risk of schizophrenia with the Afro-Caribbeans could be due to low D as well because their mothers would have had low, uh, low D due to... Um, darker skin. So we thought, let's test it in Finland. And lo and behold, it 
turned out that for boys only, that if their mothers said, no, I did, did, did not give my son vitamin D supplements during the first year of his life, then the Finnish, the National Birth Cohort showed that they had an increased risk of schizophrenia. So that was my falling in love with Finnish epidemiology. <laughs> it was such a cool study. And uh, so it, that, uh, that was really, um, I've done a lot of that type of research over the years, Simo. Absolutely fascinating story, and your links with Finland go back a long time. But John, just as you said earlier, so this move into full-time research happened in 1990 when you became the director of the Queensland Centre for Mental Health Research. And nowadays, you are one of the world-leading schizophrenia researchers in the world. And I think that even the listeners, I certainly feel it like on the other side of the world, I can hear the passion in your speech for research. So I would like to ask, because there will be many junior researchers listening to this podcast, what makes you tick when it comes to research? I don't know. I, I think researchers have to be a little bit crazy. <laughs> And uh, I mean that in a caring way. But uh, but but actually, seriously, I think um, you need... Uh, you need tenacity to be to survive in research. Um, you don't need to be especially smart. It does help to be super clever, but I never think of myself as being super clever. I've got uh, I'm very good at employing staff who are smarter than me, <laughs> and, uh, and I'm lucky. I've got several staff who are just like <laughs> sort of geniuses. I talk about their mild superpowers, <laughs> but um, uh, the um, so I think to, to be a to, to, to research. Um, we, we all do research for different reasons, but uh, but for me, it was that as a clinician, I see the unmet need. I see people not getting well, having side effects from their medication, and I'd like to prevent mental illnesses. And the thing about vitamin D, which really sort of hooked me, was that I thought, wouldn't it be cool if it, if there was just a tiny proportion of schizophrenia? It's not one disease, you know. It's probably thousands of diseases. It's like ancient physicians used to think fever. There's this disease called fever, and then they realize that there's, there's bacterial infections and viral infections like COVID or, or immune things, and there's a lot of underlying causes of fever. Um, but but there could be a small proportion that could be due to low prenatal vitamin D. And I looked at the story about folate. So all around the world, pregnant women take extra folate, or women who want to fall pregnant take extra folate. Many countries put folate in the bread to improve the level of folate because they there was evidence suggest that low folate may increase the risk of spina bifida which is a, a disorder of brain development when the when the when the spine he, uh, develops well actually it turns out that schizophrenia is probably also a disorder of brain development but of the parts of the brain that mature after puberty so even though someone may come into a hospital hallucinating and deluded at age 22 they may not have got schizophrenia that day It may well have been something that went wrong in the developing brain. And uh, we did all these animal experiments at the Brain Institute. We did studies in Denmark where we measured vitamin D. And uh, and all these studies suggest, put the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together that, that vitamin D may be a risk factor. Now, um, go going back to your question about what makes uh, um, people um, succeed in research, I think a lot of it is luck. It's tenacity. Uh, it's uh, linking with good resources. It, let, let me pause and spend a few minutes on this topic, Simo. So sure. um, I, I, I want to um, take a detour, um, and I want to talk about the great Italian scientist Galileo. So he's a brilliant guy, uh, but if anyone goes to Florence, they must visit the Galileo Museum because you can see his telescopes. And the first one, he you know he he knew that there was these magnifying lenses being made in Brussels or somewhere in the Lowlands, and he he got he made a telescope and he looked up and he saw the craters of the moon. Well, he didn't know there were craters; he thought they were lakes, and he painted them on watercolors. And then he got it, made a bigger instrument, and then he saw the rings of Saturn. Then he made a bigger telescope and he saw the moons of Jupiter. And then he realized that. You know that 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 the that the Earth wasn't at the center of the solar system, and he moved the Earth, put the Sun in the in the center, and uh, 
So he, he, great scientist. If you go to the, the museum, you'll see his, his preserved middle finger under glass and it's kind of pointing defiantly at the Pope, I think, because he got excommunicated for his beliefs. So mm-hmm. it's just a wonderful museum. But he said this. He said, what, how to do science, how to be a good scientist. And this goes back to your question. And it's very clever what he said. I'll say it twice because it's very short. He said, measure what is measurable and make measurable what is not so. So what he's saying is, if you've got a telescope, if you can measure vitamin D, if you can measure this thing, measure it. And if you can't measure it, make a better telescope. And that's, that's it. So, so, what, what, so what have I been doing for the last 30 years? I've been making better telescopes. So that's what you've done in Finland. I've come to your city because you've got this fantastic telescope called a National Birth Cohort. Praise be the Lord. The Finns are fantastic, you know, and you, you, you are such clever people. And, you know, I had the honor of meeting Paul Rantakalio, who set this up many, many in the early 60s. She was a remarkable woman. And Matty Sahani was one of my good contacts. And, and now you've got lots of really clever people, Yuko Miettinen and Erika Jaskalainen. Um, they're brilliant researchers. They're really lovely people as well. Um, but so, so you, you have a lot of people coming to your university because you've got this telescope that can see the dark matter of the universe. Not not literally astro, you know, astronomy, but but epidemiology. <laughs> and there's an, you've got other birth cohorts in 1986, so you can see what was this person like in, when they were five, ten, fifteen, twenty. And um, I have the greatest respect of that. So uh, you know, you you've had some. You still have some great scientists. You have had some visionary scientists. And, and I think the birth cohorts are a great example of how you need to be tenacious. So, okay, these people have been growing up since 1966. This is like sending a man to the moon. It's just like a huge project. And, um, and it's so enriching for our uh, global society. So I think um, uh, I haven't answered your question in a direct way about what makes... <laughs> A good scientist. You've got to be tenacious. You've got to work hard. But I do want to give you another little story for the listeners. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, so there are some tips for the baby researchers listening. So the first one is don't fall in love with your hypotheses because most hypotheses are wrong. <laughs> so for, for every correct hypothesis, there's an infinite number of wrong ones. And certainly in my career, I've had to reject some of my own hypotheses. But but the, the analogy that I use is like going to the beach and it's great fun. Building a hypothesis is like making a sandcastle. You make your sandcastle and you feel really good and you feel proud of your sandcastle. And, um, but it's really upsetting if someone comes along and kicks your sandcastle down. But it's not, so, it's not so bad if you kick your own sandcastle down. It can be fun doing that. So if you have a, a hypothesis, try your, build the telescopes, get the research, do the hard work, and test it out, and you be the one to knock it down, because that's the mark of a good scientist. You wear a falsification as a badge of courage, and sometimes you can't falsify your own hypothesis, and within that set of hypotheses, some of them may be true. We may never know, because some research questions take take a long time. So the, the good researcher should rejoice in their rejections, and... Uh, um, and in fact, they should be very proud of those. They should they should challenge the dogma because dogmatic beliefs are quite often wrong. And they should engage with outside people who can give them fresh perspectives. And that's what I really love, look back at my career. And I think I'm so lucky that that I've met great Finnish researchers who've taught me a few things. I've met I've worked in a brain institute. Now I'm working with colleagues in Denmark. So this is the chemistry of discovery and eureka moments you get those ingredients and sometimes every now and then you see something and that's for me i'm coming to the end of my career but i really hope that the next generation can use the work i'm i have done and i am doing now and um as the foundation for more eureka moments 
That's an absolutely wonderful way to put it for young researchers who are listening to this podcast. But John, you mentioned also that you are working closely with Denmark. And uh, right now you are a conjoined professor at the Queensland Brain Institute. And in, te- in 2016, you were awarded a prestigious Niels Bohr professorship at the National Center for Register-Based Research, Aarhus University, Denmark. So how did this connection form and what are you currently working on with Denmark? Well, uh, I love my friends in Denmark. I've worked with them for 20 years or so and we've grown up together and stood next to posters together at conferences. And, and uh, so we've, we, 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 we're good friends and, and I go to Denmark, but it's like Finland and Norway and Sweden, you have some of the greatest regist- registers in the world. So, um, so if I need him to test out a hypothesis, uh, it's good fun, and and I can use the telescopes or the registers in Denmark. Um, and so I work with people like Preben uh, Bo Mortensen, who is the director of the National Centre for Register-Based Research. And um, so I've been going there a long time. And curiously, the rector of my university in Brisbane, called the University of Queensland, the rector was a Danish researcher. And uh, one Friday afternoon, I was just about to go home, and I got an email from him saying, John, you should apply for one of these Niels Bohr professorships. You're, you've got friends in Denmark. <laughs> so that Christmas, uh, Preben and I wrote a grant application and we got it. And you've got to be careful what you wish for. <laughs> <laughs> now I had to, so I had to do it. And it was a lot of hard work, and, but a lot of fun. So I, I fly over to Denmark half-time. I fly back to Australia. It's a long way. So I'm like one of these guys that work on an oil rig where I fly in for two weeks and I fly out. Um, but uh, so what I've been able to do is build a new team of colleagues, really clever people. And I was so lucky. I've got such smart people to work with. Um, and we've been looking at things like how does diseases go together? We've been looking at better ways to measure aspects of disease, very much inspired by Galileo. There are some things we can measure and there are some things that are epidemiological dark matter. We can't see them, but we know that they exert a gravitational pull. We know that they're there. Let's try to measure them. Let's make a new telescope to measure them. And that's what I've been doing. But 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 it's uh, so cool. So it's funded by the Danish National Research Foundation. I think I'm the first doctor to get a Niels Bohr professorship. But a lot of the Niels Bohr professors are into like gravita- gravity waves and astronomy and photonics and quantum this and quantum that. So, <laughs> you know, it's... Um, I mean, actually, I've been a huge fan of Niels Bohr for a long time. He's such an inspiring guy. and. Um, he uh, he he he'd, he said a lot of wise things, but but one of them was, uh, which I've quoted back in a paper about fifteen years ago. He said, "No paradox, no progress." Um, and uh, he was saying that this is a little bit what I was saying about rejecting hypothesis. That you can do a hypothesis, and then you don't you find out that it, the evidence doesn't support it. And Niels Bohr's reminding us that those. Fa- failures in inverted commas, they're the stuff of discovery. That's that paradox, like what the hell's going on? And then all of a sudden you have the face palm moment and you realise, oh my God, the hypothesis is wrong. And, uh, you know, he, he, was, uh, he was really a great man and maybe some of, uh, I don't know Finnish history very well, but I know that Niels Bohr sold his Nobel Prize and donated the money to support Finnish war veterans and Finnish people who'd suffered during the uh, World War Two, uh, so he, he obviously had a, a great love of your country as well, and um, you know what a, what an amazing guy. So I feel very lucky to have the Niels Bohr professorship. It's got one more year to go. COVID's messed up things. Not so easy for me to travel at the moment, um, but uh, you know it's been a great f- productive phase of my career. And I think you mentioned a magic word right now, COVID, and we are conducting this interview in the middle of a pandemic. And I was wondering, since you have such a big perspective on mental well-being and mental health from decades as a researcher and working as a community-based psychiatrist, um, what do you think? Has this COVID-19 lockdown had some effects on the mental well-being of people and what kind of effects? So there's a lot of good research happening on that field right now. But, uh, but firstly, uh, something that w- epidemiologists have observed is that the 
general public epidemiological literacy has got better. People are talking about the curve and the R naught, and they understand about the, the, some of these classic features of of um, epidemiology where we do uh, project uh, forward projections or predictive models, like what will happen if Finland uses face masks or what will happen if we get the vaccine. And um, So, you know, I go to the shops and it, the people in front of me are talking about epidemiological features of an infectious disease. Um, so going back to the issue of uh, the impact of COVID on mental health, well, th- it, there's many ways to, to address that. I think people with, with mental disorders maybe at increased risk of getting serious side effects because quite often they're not very well physically. They tend to be a little bit overweight and have comorbid problems like heart or lung problems where they often smoke. Um, so if they get COVID, they're in trouble and that's not a good thing. And then for everyday people like you and me or our relatives and my adult children, then um, the, the stress of COVID has and the and the and the and the seismic or tectonic shifts in the way our society has operated and and our social connections, they have given people a free floating level of anxiety, and for some people they've been able to cope with it, and for some they haven't. But the, the critical issue is not so much that um, that free floating anxiety; it's the disruption to society, losing jobs, uh, a, a, a instability in accommodation if you don't have a job. Um, uh, th- these are some of the factors that are really um, shaking up our society. And it may well be that some of the projections that have been done suggest that the, the full consequence, the full mental health sequelae or outcomes related to COVID may be delayed. Some, some countries have looked at suicide rates and so far so it, the news is pretty good. That do, There does not seem to be an increased risk. There are some people that are stressed out by COVID that are taking their lives, but it's not contributed to a huge um, uh, increase yet. But it may well be that there'll be a, lo- a lag, there'll be a latency between this, this pandemic and, this, and the subsequent ongoing risks to mental health. And um, uh, we, we, we hope to explore that a, a little bit more. But, um, well, it's a, it's a shock, isn't it, Simo? You know, we, we know that, that uh, things like, Conflict and war increases anxiety and depression, post-traumatic stress disorder. So a pandemic would be expected to also impact on anxiety, depression, maybe substance use, prevalence of substance use as well. It could well be that countries like Finland and Denmark and Sweden and Norway will be the first, some of, amongst the first to see some of these uh, um, changes over time. But but the develop, developed world has, I think, recognised that people's mental health is at risk and provided more emergency support services, online counselling. So, you know, we're Zooming and it's kind of shaken up the system and brought forward some of the telehealth consultations, certainly here in Australia. Finland's a big country too and you've got isolated regions where there may not be a lot of healthcare professionals, but you've got fantastic internet and that has allowed us to kind of our countries to deliver these services via via Zoom. Um, and uh, so it, we just have to see what, 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 how it all pans out. Um, but pandemics like this are not good for health in general, that's for sure. Are there any tips that you could give to listeners um, in order to cope in the times of, in times of lockdown? Um, I think that... Um, it's important to ask for help. And uh, so I, I worry about the people that don't have the health literacy to know how to ring up for help or they are isolated. So uh, that's where our society can look after our neighbours if we think they're isolated. And that certainly happened in many countries where it's brought previously isolated people. Maybe in the next apartment, you might just wave at them once a month. You might just check on them and, and see how they're going. I, I think that... Um, that uh, that using um, methods to reduce if if you have free floating anxiety, then there are a lot of good simple tips that you can do about relaxation techniques, some apps on the phone, or yoga, or uh, cooking sourdough bread, or whatever. But please don't drink too much. <laughs> <Okay>? <laughs> that's not a that's not an adaptive way of doing it. I think exercise is really important. So if it's not too cold where you are, 
you know, you should try to keep exercising. Um, and then if you are feeling really desperate, particularly if you're having thoughts of self-harm, it's important to seek help because there are mechanisms there um, to provide that help to get you through. Um, and uh, so it's, it, it, please don't let these things go too long. Um, but, you know, there have been studies done where we try to get society more connected. And it's like that I, I, I've seen the term social vaccine. So we've got a vaccine to stop you getting this, this type of infectious disease. Maybe building those social links, building those networks can vaccinate you against the psychological impacts of COVID. But I wish I had more robust and simple methods to tell you, Simo, but I think it's actually an all of society issue. It's not just a health issue. It's, it's, it, it's the educational system. It's the employment system. Can we get people back to work? Can the government pump money into, into bridging schemes to keep people going to work? Because that, that will provide that, that social vaccine because they'll be going to work and chatting about with their friends about the soccer or whatever it is happening in, in their life. And that, that will protect them through the disruption of, of COVID. That's, there's some quick thoughts anyway. Very good thoughts. These are extraordinary times and they will show how we function as a society afterwards in trying to answer to such a big challenge. But John, let's talk about legacy and future now. So as you said, you are entering a part of your career where you are already thinking about the younger generation of researchers. If you were to form your own legacy in the domain that you've been researching for decades, what would you like to leave behind for the younger researchers? Simo, you make me feel really old. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to do that, but you said it first. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I, I turned 63 next birthday. And uh, I, 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 I'm healthy and I have, you know, that's good. So um, I think seriously though, um, so the legacy, I think there's some intangible aspects of, 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 um, of, of influence the, influencing the culture. I feel like having worked in a brain institute, I don't take full credit of this. This may, may sound lacking in modesty, but I feel because I've been going to seminars for 15 years and working at the brain institute often three days a week, not so much post-COVID. Um, I feel like the culture has changed where my friends in neuroscience see schizophrenia, depression, anxiety, whatever, substance use, as really good targets for brain scientists. And I think um, if I get run over by a bus or if I'm in Denmark and I get hit by a bike, which is more likely to happen, <laughs> um, then, uh, then I feel like that's a legacy that I've left. I, I hope I've left some good foundations, epidemiological foundations, and um, particularly some of the early work I did looking at the, the profile of, of schizophrenia in society. We were able to bust a few myths, and um, I hope that can realign the direction of our, of our community uh, where evidence is really important. You can't keep regurgitating wrong ideas. That'll just go, people will go around in circles, and, you know, it ends up being this, degenerating field where just a job creation scheme for board researchers. We, re we really want to advance the field. Um, and all, so a lot of the work I'm doing now is, is building large, what I call Google Maps. So we're looking at comorbidity in Denmark. And we're looking at comorbidity for the whole set of mental disorders. So it's like you've got Google Earth and then Google, you can see the city and then you can see the, the streets and you can see the the number on the on the door, <laughs> and that that's what we're trying to do in some of our Danish studies. And you know, Finnish researchers have done this, and um, yeah, as well. So it's not a particularly novel idea, but but um, so I feel like that's the legacy. And then I, so I want to build capacity, build a culture that can can question the dogma. And uh, you know, we we're talking before about what makes scientific innovation, and I think that the culture is really important. You 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 need to challenge the dogma and in in english they talk about it's a very old testament term where you you tug the prophet's beard where you 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 aren't brave enough to say to someone older and more senior to you well actually simo i'm not sure whether this is right are you sure this is right yeah and they might get very angry with you and say what do you mean i've been saying this is right for 20 years and so you just have to have a level of cynicism and skepticism but be polite 
and respectful, um, but challenge that dogma. But look, the trick is that coming up with new hypotheses, that's easy. You go out to the hotel and have a few beers or whatever, you can come up with 20 hypotheses. The hard thing is getting the data. And that's where you need to be organised. You need to work with, you know, efficient people. You need support from funding agencies. You need to build better telescopes or use telescopes like the, re- like the cohorts in Finland. Um, so, uh, um, and actually, there, there are other amazing things in Finland as well. Like Denmark, you're, you're a relatively homogenous society uh, genetically, and, that, and, that, and you've got some isolated populations that have different disorders. Um, you've got fantastic health registers. You do surveys of mental health. You've got very strong um, public health institutes in your country, and you've got fantastic education. That Your education system is the envy of the world. All in the news, we're always talking about why can't we be more like Finland and why don't we pay our teachers as much as Finland does and respect them more. So you've got all the right stuff to, to have more creative. To, you, know, you, you do have great scientists and you've got, you can do more. So I think that's the, the legacy that I want to do in the Nordic countries and particularly in Denmark as I come to the end of the Niels Bohr is to, is to see my senior uh, postdocs launched on their own career and coming up with better ideas than me. That's, that's my dream. Now I want to turn the tables and focus on the positives. So we, we will be saying that you have still decades in the, in the <laughs> academic, academic environment and you will be contributing even more to the uh, research uh, findings and purposes in the field. And one of the honorary doctors that we interviewed in this podcast was Finnish geneticist Arno Palotie. Oh, yes, yes. He said that he is very much looking forward how in the future genetics research will be contributing to mental well-being and mental health research. Are there any future uh, developments that you are still looking very much forward to in your own career and in your own research? Yeah, well, Arno Pilotti is a rock star and actually he came to Brisbane uh, many years ago. but, um, yeah, look, I, I'm actually very optimistic about the future, Simo. I think, um, you know, I talked about uh, understanding the broken brain. And, uh, and I often tell my students that, like, well, we put a man on the moon 50 years ago. Why can't we work out the brain? And the answer is, is this, that the brain is much, much more complicated. So, you know, I look at what the research that Arno's done and other um, great geneticists, they've really advanced our understanding of genetics, but they also know there's a lot more work to be doing. It's like you, you drill down and you see more levels of complexity and there's more work to be done. So I, I think look over the next 20, 30 years, um, I, I, I think we'll understand more about the brain. I think some of this will be driven by people like Arno and uh, other great Finnish genetics research. Uh, some of it will be may come through from research done on zebrafish. I, I saw a, a thing on Twitter a couple of weeks or months ago, and uh, it was one of those sort of uh, uh, tweets that it just made you shake your head, but someone was saying, well, you know, I used to have a great research in vi- virology, but all my grants were knocked back because they said, why would anyone want to know about a coronavirus that only affects bats? And and that, that's a, a great test case of why fundamental science is important. Well, now that issue about this coronavirus that only affects bats or whatever is the biggest question on the planet. And I feel like we need to do that for neuroscience as well. And sometimes people say, oh, no, we we have to make our research more clinically focused and translatable so we can reduce the burden of suffering. Now, that's true. We, we, We could be doing more for people with serious mental illness. But if I was the in charge of a large bucket of money, running the big health research funding agencies, I'd be putting a very sizable proportion into basic neuroscience. And then I'd sit back and tell everyone, it's going to be 50 to 100 years. Let's get on with it. And uh, there's a story I told to, uh, to some colleagues recently um, uh, about someone who was designing a, a big garden, a big botanical garden. And he was saying to the gardeners, I want a big um, a, a big street full of fantastic fig trees here and uh, and um, the huge trees. I want massive oak trees there. And, I want, and they said, well, look, this is going to take 100 years for these trees to grow up. And he said, good, 
We must plant the trees today. We cannot waste a second. And that's how I feel about the brain. I'm not going to throw my hands up and say, oh, it's all too hard. It's all mysterious. It's all spooky and vaporous and cosmological. We'll never understand the brain. Rubbish. We just have to do the work and it's going to take a long time. So I'm very upbeat about discoveries in neuroscience. I'm constantly amazed at some of the new like telescopes that my friends in neuroscience are are building, and I'm very upbeat about that. Um, And and I hope that my dream, my quixotic dream, is, is that one day we can prevent things like schizophrenia with simple, safe public health interventions. That would be that would be cool. I don't think I'll be alive to see that because the time scales aren't right. This this is hard research, but um, but I but I'm also very upbeat about the future of of neuroscience. I see so many bright young people uh, working in the Brain Institute in Brisbane and in epidemiology, and, and my colleagues in Denmark and in Hulu as well. You've got fantastic researchers there. You know, we've had some of the MD PhDs come and work with us in Brisbane and doing research on the link between smoking and various substance use uh, exposures and risk of mental illnesses. And Yuko Mertinen has done fantastic work um, in this field. So I'm feeling very upbeat about that. And I hope that that Finland will keep supporting these brilliant young people because you've got fantastic intellectual biodiversity. So you just need to support these people and they'll come up with the discoveries. We got some really great policy advice for all the decision makers who will be listening to the podcast too. Well, John, I I think the collaboration that you worked on during the years has been going really well because you've received several national and international awards and honors as a researcher, as a researcher. And right now you've been conferred as an honorary doctor of the University of Oulu. And basically sports terms, I would like to ask, how does it feel? (laughs) <laughs> what does this recognition mean to you? Well, look, it, it is lovely. And uh, obviously, my mum and my late dad were very proud of these things as well. So I, I, um, I, I think it's good for have, to have something to aspire to when you're a junior researcher and you see people getting awards. I think we need heroes. And, and I, I, I see senior researchers as, as, uh, as kind of like secular saints. You know, when I was a junior researcher, I worked with great people, and um, and that, that, like a like a, a fan of a great pop star or, or sports star, and uh, so maybe when I, at the end of my career, I can I can provide that type of role model of of um, uh, for junior researchers to, to to keep going. For for me, it's um, my university likes it when I get awards; they can boast about me. <laughs> Um, I can give feedback to my staff about how much I love them and I enjoy working with them because, it, you know, it's not a single thing. It's, this is the annoying thing about these awards. They're, they're usually for people rather than teams. And, and, and research doesn't operate in the old way. Like Darwin would just go off and do his thing on his own. You need huge collaboration. Well, actually, he was a good collaborator. He wrote tens of thousands of letters all around the world. Um, so, uh, so I think um, it's, uh, I feel very lucky. I feel happy. About within myself. I suppose getting these awards also makes me feel a little bit less hungry. I feel like, okay, you should feel good about what you've done. And I'm, I'm talking to you today from my mountain house and, uh, and I love working in the garden. And sometimes I think like, maybe I should just spend more time in the garden and less time working on grants. <laughs> Could be good for my mental health, but, but I haven't lost the, the passion for research yet. But I do look forward to the day where I can spend more time in my garden. Sounds absolutely wonderful. And we've had a wonderful discussion going on. And in the beginning, we were a we were a bit hesitant whether the internet connection will be working. So I heard there was some opossums on the roof of your yes. mountain huts that were doing something with the internet, but it's working. Maybe they repaired it. Yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty scary last night, but uh, yeah, we we have a lot of wildlife that entertains my Nordic friends. So we have a very large python in the garden somewhere, a snake. It's about three meters long, and uh, I saw it's left. They changed their skin, so I saw this long snake skin outside my study, and that was exciting. And uh, but we have beautiful birds and kookaburras, and I've been feeding the birds, so it's it is idyllic. So I think researchers and and people in COVID need ways to cope. With, with stress and for me watering the garden and planting things listening to the birds and having that ex- for me seeing a snake is so exciting i feel alive 
These snakes aren't dangerous. They just give you a thrill. They're not, they're not venomous or anything like that. Sounds like a true garden of Eden. But I think, John, since the internet connection has been working for most of the interview, it will also work for the very last question that I have you. And this last question is a question that we ask in the exact same way from every single honorary doctor that we interview uh, in this podcast. And it goes like this. If you would be asked to describe University of Oulu with three words, what would those words be and why did you choose them? Okay. Um, the first word would be smart. Uh, you, you, your academics are smart. <laughs> um, you know, you've got that little logo with a strong man and with the muscles. And, and, um, but I think they're, bra- they're, they're strong in brain skills. And uh, I think the, the other thing about your university is not so much a University of Ulu issue, but it's a, all of Finland issue, is that you have a society that cares about education and your university is, a, is a, like a cog in that wheel where you can take the products of the great Finnish educational system and turn them into even better educated people. Uh, your university has a track record of collaborating with people from all around the world. And um, so um, I think that, that uh, it ha- is a very respected brand. And um, so I think that's the, the issue. And I actually really like the Finnish people as well. There's something tough and adm- admirable about them. And, uh, you know, I remember being picked up by Mati Isahani the first time I came to Ulu. And I'd been traveling for about 35 hours. You know, I was really tired and smelly. It's a long way from Brisbane. And he said, come and have, come and have a sauna with me <laughs> at my house. <laughs> and the uh, first time I've been in a sauna. But it was very good and, and, uh, um, and, and invigorating. So uh, I think that, that, uh, that, that meeting legendary people like uh, 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 Matty and Yuko and Erika, and I actually met, as I said, I met Paula Horantikalio as well before she passed away. Um, uh, I feel like many of your professors and academics and clinicians who work at mental health research have been an inspiration to me. So I think that I think that the word inspiration comes to, and I think smart is the other word that I mentioned before. Absolutely wonderful. John, this interview has taken us from Galileo to the telescopes that will be telling the future of the dark matter of human uh, mental well-being and how the societies can cope in a pandemic situation. And it's been a wonderful honor talking to you. And I have to say, we are very eagerly waiting to get you there from the land down under to the land up above here in Olo, when the doctoral promotion will be organized eventually. And all that is left for me to say right now is thank you so much, John, and I wish you all the best. Thank you, Simo. It's been fun. And I also look forward to wearing my top hat and my sword. So I will hope to see you sometime, maybe next year. That'll be a sight. Thank you so much, John. Okay. This was an interview with Honorary Doctor, and my guest was Honorary Doctor Professor John McGrath. Mm-hmm.